overwhelmed. Wow. Wow, thank you, Andre. Boy. <clears throat> All right, let's pray. That, that, that is the, uh, that's the book of Revelation. <clears throat> you know, I heard from an old wise man once that you can't appreciate heaven until you suffer. And that the greater suffering that life has dealt you, the greater capacity your soul has to appreciate what it means to be with him and imagine being in heaven. So for those of you who have been through great loss in your life, be encouraged that God may have given you a gift to appreciate a song like that <clears throat> and enter into it. Wow. All right, let's pray. Lord, Lord, we thank you, Father, for just the gifts of the Spirit, that you give gifts to people to lead us to Jesus. And we've just received the gift in worship and that song. We thank you. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that as we enter into the life of the early believers in the city of Philadelphia, that you had a living word for them, and that this word in Scripture is a living word for us today, living right where we are in New York City. So we pray, Lord, that we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. And we pray for fire to receive it and to walk through the doors that you have for us in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go with me, please, to uh, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we were able to order some, uh, some copies of a Bible study guide on Revelation, and I thought about writing questions for the book, because a number of you are reading the book and trying to study it on your own, as we're in a series in the book of Revelation. But uh, really, this one is, it was no need for me to write it, because this one is quite good. And it'll get you in the text, and so we bought, I think, 30 copies for now, uh, you know, from the local bookstore to make available. To those of you who are doing Revelation in your quiet time, I want to encourage you to pick it up, I think it's 5 $6. And uh, it'll help you in your devotional time as we're on this series for the next few months. And if we sell all 30, we'll get 30 more, you know? But here it is, it'll be sold at the book table where Ann and Sue are with tapes, all right? Cool. All right, I want to begin with a little, little story. Uh, it's from a book called Byzantium by Stephen Lawhead. He's a, a, a Christian, I think, a historical novelist. And uh, this book is... It's a novel about, uh, in the 10th century, some Irish monks living in Ireland, uh, and about one monk in particular who loves God, loves living in the monastery, you know, has his prayer four or five times a day, and his job is to copy scripture out, you know, in the manuscripts he's a scribe. And uh, he loves his life and has sacrificed a great deal to be there, but uh, one day he is chosen, along with uh, 13 other monks, to carry a copy of the scriptures, or, or, or you know, they had this you know, very ornate, he's probably seen at museums, copy of the Bible, that they were going to present from their monastery to the Holy Roman Emperor in Constantinople, which, which was the center for the church at that time. And uh, so he, along with 13 others, they get on a boat and they leave Ireland uh, for the first time in his life. Uh, and they are quickly captured by barbarians from Scandinavia. So those of you from Scandinavia, sorry, but uh, your past is very barbaric. And so these barbarians capture these monks and uh, make them slaves. And so he finds himself in a foreign land, foreign language, foreign for everything, a slave. And uh, one thing leads to another. They get, they get conquered by somebody else. And, and over time, he experiences great suffering. And of the 13 monks, all of them die except for four. He ends up in, a, in, a mi in the mines. Uh, he, he watches his fellow monks die torturous deaths. At one point, the bishop, the head of their monk, their, the group, is actually torn apart physically by, with, by limb by limb. 
and cries out to his God. And, uh, and as this monk says, he says, the, uh, my God did not as much lift a finger to ease his sufferings. And then he finally somehow, through a long series of events, ends up at the emperor of Constantinople's palace in with the, the emperor, and he finds out that the center of Christianity is corrupt, lawless, political, and all about power. So he's so disillusioned with the church. Ring a bell, huh? All right, and so he finally, after a number of years, ends up back at his monastery. But by now, he's no longer a believer. And uh, he watches his brothers pray, and he says to himself, lies, all lies. How can anybody believe a single word? And I expected God to honor his word. He finally met with his, his mentor, bishop, mentor monk, and he says, I expected God to honor his word. I have learned there is no truth. The innocent are everywhere slaughtered, they die pleading for God to save them, and death takes them away anyhow. Christ's holy church is full of vipers. That's poisonous snakes, by the way. The emperor, God's co-ruler on earth, is a vile, unholy murderer. His mentor responds and says, Oh, you are richly blessed. Life is a school of the spirit. Learning is our soul's requirement. And suffering is our most persuasive teacher. And he doesn't buy it, of course. But as he's sitting there, and he stays there about six months, and he doesn't, he's thinking about where to go, these barbarians that originally taken him slaves, they had been searching for him all over you know, the known world at that time. And they finally find him. And they, they're called sea wolves. And it turns out that the head uh, barbarian who had made him the slave had become a Christian through his witness in the early days before he became an unbeliever again. And uh, so he comes with all these, you know, hundreds of other folks from Scandinavia, these barbarians, and they come to be baptized. And they come also to take him, and they want to bring him back to Scandinavia to convert, the con- you know, convert their country. And, uh, here, and so as a, this, this Danish barbarian, sea wolf, pirate kind of a guy, is being baptized. He says, the hanging god of my friend here you know, is unlike any other god of the universe. This god suffers too, just like his people. And so, of course, the story ends on a good note, and the monk it gets reconverted, you know, he comes back to Christ, and he goes with the Danes for the rest of his life to Scandinavia and births a church. It actually is a, it's based on a true story of what really happened. But I point it out to you because uh, what happens, he, he gets at the end of his life, he understands Christianity. I mean, he didn't get it. He didn't get it, this whole thing of suffering and difficulty and pain and so he got disillusioned with God, and he recognizes this suffering God on a cross and all that it meant, and he gets 20-20 visions. He gets a clarity about life. And really, the book of Revelation is about clarity about life. It's about seeing life for what it really is and not being deluded. And uh, that Christian, Christians were able to laugh at the face of death in the early church because they recognized that Christ had conquered death. And he who believes in me, Jesus said, though he dies, yet shall he live. And the verse, this is our, our theme today, is walking through God's door. In fact... You see the door over there? That to, to, uh, where's my, uh, that door is, uh, it's an elk door, so it's going to have to do for now. You know, employees only and in. But I want you to picture this theme of a door throughout the whole message today, because we're going to read the text. It's all about walking through open doors and uh, the Church of Philadelphia. But Michael, put the verse up. And uh, this verse is really the theme of Revelation, and it comes from the Apostle Paul, who wrote this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That, uh, like, really, the song that was sang at the offering, 
that the message of Revelation is to get a perspective of life that's so clear that no matter what trial or difficulty you are walking through today, and no matter what, in this case, you know, this fellow who was a slave, that are, my present sufferings are not worth even, they're not worth even comparing to the glory when I see him face to face. When, as Andre sang at the offering, when I walk by his side. And so I can endure and walk through situations and trials with blazing hope. Not just resignation, but blazing hope. Because they are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us and around us and through us. It's a great verse. That's really the whole theme of the whole book of Revelation. So, with that, I want us to go to Revelation 3, beginning at verse uh, 7. Now, a few words about Philadelphia real quick. Is the city of Philadelphia, there's seven cities mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. They're all in present-day Turkey. Then it was called Asia Minor, a Roman province. Only two of the seven churches get a blessing. The rest are rebuked pretty severely. This church of Philadelphia gets a blessing. As someone said to me, thank God after last week's sermon about waking up. You know, so uh, last week was a bit severe. Uh, and, uh, but Philadelphia means what? City of brotherly love. All right, good. And uh, actually, that's what the word in Greek means, one who loves his brother. Because it was built on two brothers who loved each other, and they were known for their devotion. That's how the whole Greek word was developed and all that. It's very interesting. Anyway, it's a city, and a couple things about the city. Philadelphia is, I want you to move that. Someone move that to the thing? It was a city full of earthquakes. Uh, that was how it was known in Roman times. In fact, uh, throughout Asia Minor, in present-day Turkey, uh, is, a, is a place where lots of earthquakes occur. And Philadelphia itself is located on a fault line. And so it was known as a city with lots of tremors and lots of earthquakes. Now, in 17 AD, there was a huge earthquake that all the seven cities that are mentioned in this book were all affected by it. And if you read writings of that day from the history books, they all talk about the earthquake of 17 AD, which is about, you figure, 50, 60 years before this, this letter was written. But Philadelphia was demolished. The city was destroyed almost completely. And so it became known that lots of, from that point on, after the earthquake, they did rebuild the city, the, the emperor rebuilt it, but never, never like it was. And it lost its, 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 um, its centrality as a very strategic, world-class city. And lots of people end up moving to the countryside because they didn't want to live in the center of the city where the earthquake hit. And so you've got this picture of instability, lots of tremors. In fact, my wife and I, in the, in the, um, in the 1980s, we were in Managua, Nicaragua. And Nicaragua had an earthquake in the 1970s that was incredible. And when we got to the center of the capital city of Managua, we were with, you know, with some fellow, and we said, where is the center of the city? And it was all these green fields full of weeds. And we're like, he goes, this is it. And we were so confused because, uh, I mean, it was just, you know, there's a building over here and a building over there and, you know, you know ten, maybe a million people in the city or two million people, but all scattered in, in, in these small shacks, but very few buildings still, they never rebuilt the city. It was such a broken city that I've never seen a center of a capital city without a center, with all these big lush fields. But everyone, because of the fear of the earthquakes, was living in low-lying areas all around the center. And that's really what Philadelphia is like, was like. So you've got a sense of instability economically, and you've got to have that feel there to appreciate what's going to come on later in the text. And um, so economically, it's not doing well, um, and it's a little tiny city that's got a great location, all right, because of some external catastrophes that have hit it. Now, with that said, let's read, beginning at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Now, I get the word key. Now, I don't like that word key because the whole image is doors here. So Jesus says, I've got the key of David. What he opens, no one 
can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. Every letter says that. Every letter of the seventh chapter. I know your deeds. Uh, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Underline that verse. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Underline those two words, little strength. Verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from, really it's in, in the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. All right, now, let's go on. Basically, he starts by saying, Jesus says, I know where you are, and I know what you're up against. And that's what Jesus says to all of us. Listen, I know where you are, I know what you're up against. He tells his little church in Philadelphia, you know, it's like, you ever hear the expression, someone says to you, how you doing? And you say, hanging in there. That's where the church is Philadelphia is. How you doing? We're hanging in there. And you'll notice the phrase, little strength, very important phrase. Jesus says, I, 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 I know, verse 8, I know that you have little strength. You ever feel like, I just got a little bit of strength. And the word there is dunamis, or dynamite, power. I know you've got just a little bit of power. But I commend you because you've been faithful in it. And you ever feel like that? I just got a little bit of power. A little, I have a little strength. And Jesus doesn't say, ask for more strength at this point. Uh, he goes, because they, they have not, the church in Philadelphia, they didn't go after the beast. And they didn't go after heresy. But they're weak. And Jesus loves it when we're weak. Just so you know, it's not bad to be weak. It just depends on what you do with your weakness. But he, he, he actually commends them. I know you're weak. But uh, they, they've, been, they've been opposed by this Jewish synagogue, which, again, most scholars believe was probably mixed in with uh, Zeus worship and, and the Greek mythology, like in, if you remember back at uh, Thyatira and Pergamum, very similar. And uh, they've been thrown out of the synagogue. And a lot of these believers were Jewish believers. They were thrown out of the synagogue because they're saying, we're the true Israel of God, we're the people of God, and the Jewish people said, no, you're not. And they threw them out. So they've been excommunicated. And Jesus is the door, because I'm the door, and I have the keys of who comes in and who comes out. And I want you to know, you're not out, you're in. And, uh, but he, they, they've not bought into any heresy like the other churches. They've not compromised with the beast. Remember the beast? It's the great Roman culture. With all of its propaganda, all of its values, all of its priorities, all of its propaganda and lies about what life is all about and what success is. And we've been talking about that for weeks. We're surrounded by it day and night. This church in Philadelphia has not bought into the beast. Do we put the verse up, Michael? You know, the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Is there another one here? And asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against them? Go on. And all the inhabitants of the, wor uh, of the earth will worship the beast. So what's going on is all over the world, people following the beast. But this church in Philadelphia, they're being faithful. With the little strength they got, they're hanging on. And this calls for patient endurance. And uh, I think my thing's out. Oh, gosh. My battery's out. Oh, well, you win some, you lose some. Okay. <laughs> they're patiently enduring, and they're faithful, this church. So it's a good thing. And um, again, externally, they've had a disaster in having an earthquake. 
And so you've got to understand, there's a lot of instability in this city. And undoubtedly, lots of people must have moved out by then. And so there's lots of scholarly stuff written about it. Now, I want you to talk about where we live today, because externally, I think you can just get rid of that. So externally, uh, where we live, things are not looking too good. Uh, this past week, there was an article in the New York Times on Monday, and the title of it was, as an editorial, it says, Staring into the Abyss, into the Pit. It's referring to the future of New York City, or staring into the pit of hell would be another way of putting it. And here's what the editorial writer says. He says, the city is in a budget meltdown, and the state is not far behind. It is the worst fiscal crisis since the disaster of the 1970s. New York City has to close a gap that is estimated at $1 billion for the remainder of this fiscal year and $6 billion for the next. The state has a shortfall next year of $10 billion. We are witnessing the first stage in New York City of what may become a precipitous decline in the city's quality of life. All the tax arrows are pointing up, and all the service arrows are pointing down. Hunger, homelessness, and unemployment are big problems. Library hours are shrinking, and resources are being carted away from a school system that was already in deep trouble. Then he goes on and says, and there's nobody leading any efforts out of this thing. And then he speaks about Mayor Bloomberg, da, da, da. But in the moment, he closes, his closing paragraph, in the moment, the city is broke and its future is bleak. And the next day came out all these warnings from the FBI, which I'm sure you all saw. That was on the FBI website, which all the news, uh, you know, Associated Press and others picked up on. And uh, here's what the, the FBI warning said. Sources suggest this is a quote from the FBI, that al-Qaeda may favor spectacular, events, uh, spectacular attacks that meet several criteria, high symbolic value, mass casualties, severe damage to the US economy, and maximum psychological trauma. It's encouraging. And uh, so things were not going well around the church in Philadelphia. And I'd like to suggest to you that things aren't going so well around us either. And we don't know what the future holds, but there's a good probability that we could end up much like the city of Philadelphia. And I went to my daughter's junior high class this past week. It was parent week. And I sat through two classes. I left a second one early. My daughter says, why did you go home? I said, I was just so discouraged. Now, I'm junior high is junior high. So let's, you know, a lot of hormones flying around the classroom. So, but nonetheless, as I spoke with a after-school beacon teacher, does after-school programs, and, and she was so discouraged about, she said, you know, it's not, I said, why don't you do this and this and this, with all sports and, and art and music and all the other creative things that would make school enjoyable. And she goes, it's not about the kids. It's about money and power and politics. And I just, I just said the beast. And I just, you know, and the future of a school, the school system, in her opinion, which was, was, was nil, with budget cuts and everything else coming down. And, I, you know, I, I thought of the church at, at Philadelphia. Things are not going well around them. And so our first, natu- our first reaction is, let's get, let's, let's, let's get out of town. <laughs> I mean, let's get out of here. <laughs> I mean, they go, you know, find a nice, comfortable place somewhere in uh, some other state. But God has a word for this church in Philadelphia that I, I don't know how well to describe it, but it's a prophetic word, I believe, for our church in New York City. And here's what God says. Michael, here's, he says basically this. It's in verse 8. 
He says, walk through, gee, it was right before, walk through the door. I, the Lord Almighty, am opening before you. And what looks like it's a disaster, you don't understand. This is your best hour. Because you are the one who's now to walk through a tremendous door that I'm opening for you. Now look at verse 8. Now look at the text. Because it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an expression. God says, I'm opening up, I've opened up a door for you that... That's okay, sorry, back up, sorry. I've opened up a door for you that no one can shut. And it's a present tense, the door's open right now. You see that door over there? He says, I've opened that door. It is open for you, and nobody in hell or on earth can shut it, because I've opened it for you. Now, it refers to, yes, you have access to heaven, which is true, but it's an expression used in the Bible, in the New Testament, for opening up doors to bear witness to what is true. Now, Michael, put up some of these verses. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door has been opened to me. So it's referring to the fact of, of an opportunity to bear witness to what is true. Next verse, 2 Corinthians 2, the same phrase used, open a door. I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found the Lord had opened a door for me. And he, he got to Troas, he saw the door, and he went through it. That meant he, he gave testimony verbally to what is true about Christ. Next verse. In, in Colossians, he goes, he goes, pray for us that God may open a door for our message. So he's asking God, pray God will open up a door that we can preach and proclaim the message of Christ. And then finally, in Acts 14, the church gathers together at Antioch, and they report the, what God had done through them and how he has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so it's, it's a technical term for basically uh, testifying or bearing witness to what is true. And so what the Lord is saying to this Philadelphia church, you may be small, you may be weak, you may have been thrown out of the synagogue, you may be suffering, but I want to tell you something, and, and the city may be in shambles, but I want to tell you something, that I've opened up a door for you that nobody can shut. And just like for that monk who found himself a slave in the worst of circumstances with his friends being torn apart by the limb, this is your finest hour. This is not the worst hour, this is your best. And so, remember... Michael, go on the next one. Did we, did we, did we put the, um, remember this, remember this message we did this a few weeks ago. The, one of the themes of Revelation is that we're to bear witness to the truth over against the lies of the beast. And he's saying to these folks in Philadelphia, the church, I'm taking you to a place. I want you to go through a door to bear witness on a whole new level against the beast. Oh, I'm, I'm weak, I have a little strength. Don't worry about it. Go through the door. Now remember, the, the dragon, this image is later used in Revelation, the dragon, who is Satan, is enraged at the woman, who is Christ, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold it up to the testimony of Jesus. And so you've got this image of that if you're involved, in, as you're a believer, and you're actively serving Christ, there is a dragon out to destroy you and shut you down, that you would not verbally bear witness to what is true, that you will say nothing and be silenced. And so you find yourself in a war. But it says in chapter 12, verse 11, they overcame him. How do they overcome the dragon? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's the word for witness. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And so Jesus is saying this, Philadelphians, I want you to go through that door. Now, yes, through that door is suffering. That is true. But I want you to bear witness and you're going to overcome and defeat the powers of hell through your weak, humble witness to what is true. And in the process, some of you will die. You will not, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
But the way the kingdom expands and advances on the earth is the same way Jesus expanded. The lamb was slaughtered in the same way we, we uh, advance the kingdom through our humble witness to what is true and bearing opposition as it comes our way. So, with that, with that, go on, Michael, the next one. I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. That's the reality of the book of Revelation. The woman refers to Babylon the whore, which is another expression for the Roman Empire. And so, uh, that is what's going on. There are lots of people dying at this period in church history for their faith and bearing witness. And the goal of John is to instill courage to not be ashamed, but to walk through that door and to bear witness to what is true. Now, what does it look like to walk through the door? That's the question. For you, for me, that God has before us. And let me throw out a couple of things and you can think about it. There's a great, before I forget, there's a great promise. When you go through the door, and we'll get to this at the end, God's promises are so incredible that you'll have the faith, the guts, the courage to get up from where you are and go through that door to a new place that God has for you. The promises of what God is going to do at the end of this chapter, at the end of this letter, is so unbelievable that that alone is worth a whole message. The final three verses of this. But let's take, for example, it's the holidays, right? It's Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. And you're going to be connecting with friends and family and employees and neighbors probably on a level more than any other time of the year. But many of us, the reality is, even at the table at dinner or at a party, many of us will be so embarrassed to say, let's say grace. Something as minimal as that to bear witness. Many of us will struggle to walk through that door that uncomfortable moment before it's time to eat, and people look around and say, does anybody have the guts to take any leadership here and say, let's thank God? And everything in you is churning on the inside, but that's a door that God's opening for all of us, just at the holidays, how it comes every year. But most of us are so oblivious, we don't even know that it was an open door that God had for us. Let's take, let's take uh, the workplace. What are the open doors that God has for you where you work? I want you to think about it for a minute. Because many of us, we have no idea. God's opened up a door there. Now, you may be a student. You may be working in the hospital system as a doctor or a nurse. You may be an, have your own business, people you come in contact with. You may be in law. You may be in uh, the financial area. You may be a union employee, you know, electrician, plumber. You may be, find yourself in social work, a police officer, a sanitation department. And God's saying, you may think you're small potatoes, but you're not. You're big potatoes. And I've got a door that I've opened for you to walk through and to bear witness to the truth in that place. And I want you to walk through, because on the other side of that door is probably another door, but there is blessings and a release of life in your life that can be found in no other way but going through that door. But do not stay where you are, Philadelphia Church. You've hung on, that's good. But it is time to go through the door to the next place that I have for you. Then he goes on, let's take your neighborhood. I mean, I, you know, what does it mean to walk through the doors in your neighborhood? Now, I, I've been participating in this lighthouse uh, I think a, they put up the little flyer. Hey, if, you, if you sign up for Lighthouse Ministry, you get a, a decal from Drew, I think, or something like that. But um, we're encouraging every small group, every community, every individual, family, single person, youth, to, to sign up for this Lighthouse. You get some materials, and all it means is you're going to start by just praying three, four times a week for your neighbors, the people you work with or your friends. And I've been doing it for the last few months. It has been tremendous. And what happens is just by praying for them a few times a week, and I forget half the time, but I do remember three, four times a week, and I, I, I've just got, I, I'm seeing the doors God's opening. 
And so one of my neighbors had his fifth child out of wedlock with different women. And he told me, you know, kind of like handing me a cigar, you know. And I said, all right, yeah. So, and God just stopped me. And I was going into my house. And I said to him, oh, well, you had a child with her. I said, well, why don't you marry her? And he just said, no, you know, no way. But it was a tremendous opportunity to talk to him. I said, I'll marry you. We'll do premarital counseling. Yeah, he loved that, you know. And uh, I said, for you, free, you know. And, uh, but, you know, he didn't buy it, but it was a tremendous opportunity. It was an open door for me. And I just grabbed it. And it wasn't, it wasn't an effort. It was just it was an open door. I walked through it. It was a little one. But we got these all the time in our lives. But so often, we don't even see them because we're so self-absorbed. And the Philadelphia Christians have a lot to be self-absorbed about. Their economy's a mess. They have little strength. They're just, they're enduring. They're hanging on. But you know what? That's a whole other world there. But God said, you walk through that door, I will give you everything you need to go. To, to go. But you've got to go through it. With the energy you've got, go through it. I've given you enough dynamite, enough little strength, enough power to bear witness to me. Now walk through it. You know, I, I think, you know, we've got lots of personal doors here in this room. And that's great. But I just step back and I look at New Life Fellowship as a church. I mean, you think about us for a minute. We are located in Elmhurst, Queens, New York City. Just, just stop for a minute. I mean, think about it. Now, Elmhurst is one of the most unique geographic places on the earth. And many of us, we travel in from different places in Queens, some Manhattan, some Long Island, right? You, we all come here because I think we recognize not just that God's, you know, God's doing something great at New Life, but just the location of where we are is just so strategic. I mean, New York Times and National Geographic wrote articles about this because the 123 countries live in the same neighborhood here. It's the most multi-ethnic place on the planet. And our church just happens to be right smack in the middle of that. And not just in the smack in the middle of Elmhurst, we're in the middle of Queens, New York. I mean, Queens is the immigrant capital of the world. 2.23 million people, half of which were born from other countries, and another 800,000 plus who are illegal floating around our midst. But the whole world's here. And then we live in New York City, the, which is from PBS, documentary said this about New York City. It's the most influential city in the history of the world. New York City. Like Washington, D.C., it's a center of power. Like Tokyo, it's a center of finance. Like Los Angeles, it's a center of the media. And like Paris, it's a center for fashion and the arts. It also has one of the lowest percentage of Christians than any place in the country. But the fact that God placed us as a church family here we have to ask, ask ourselves the question, what open doors has God placed before us for the nations? That the impact of what's in front of us and what do we do with the little energy we've got? I mean, in terms of missions, I mean, uh, you know, our, our, as you know, we've got, we've got there's like six New Life fellowships here in New York City, but our Spanish part of New Life is, is presently planting churches like mad men and women all over Latin America. Because the door is so wide open in Latin America. So we've got now, new, there's two new lives in Colombia, and there's one in Ecuador, and there's one in the Dominican Republic, and they tell me, they tell me there's one in Chile, and I'm like, I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, relax. As long as I'm not responsible, go, go. God bless you. I'm like, go. I'm happy for you. I'm very happy for them. But, you know, they've got this huge open door, as they've got this coming and going from all over the world, and, and, and the population of Latin America is so open to the gospel. There's such a tremendous openness there. I mean, God's opened up doors for us in the Philippines, you know, and we've been there for a number of years. And who knows what all the doors God's going to open there. And, and Indonesia, and we think of places like Russia, I got, you know, and Mongolia, and Cuba. I mean, I, I can't tell you the numbers of, of invitations that even come my way. 
for our church to go places. That, it's been a matter of timing for us and when and all that stuff, but, but God has placed us in such a strategic place worldwide that what we do here goes all over the place because of the nature of our location. It's a gift, and I, I think actually even the building, I believe, is another open door God has for us, that, that this place will be used for after-school programs and medical clinics and teaching English as a second language and, and you name it. And in terms of reaching people with the gospel, it's a huge open door that I think God is sending our way. But I, 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 I you know, I, I, I look at the open doors, and I, I get overwhelmed. Why, should, why are we doing this thing called reconciliation? I mean, why are we so committed to crossing racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers? Why the battle? Because we want to bear witness of the fact that it's the beast who segregates people of someone's better than somebody else based on color of skin, based on education, based on money, and based on your sex, your, sex, your gender. And that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And that it's the love that we have for one another that's to demonstrate that Jesus is alive. And so why do we labor? Because we want to bear witness as an open door to the nation, the fact that Jesus is alive. And that churches do not have to be segregated places. That folks who are rich, poor, black, white, Spanish, Asian, we can all get along in Christ and be a family as God intended because the blood of Jesus is powerful enough. Why do we labor here, whether it's choir or worship or cleaning or ushering or greeting? Because we're building a, a family that's walking through an open door to bear witness over and against the beast that Jesus is alive. Why do we stand up what, what a proper sexuality is, whether it's singles or marriage, what healthy family is, what, health, what, what, what healthy parenting is, because we want to bear witness and open door before us about our culture that, that is throwing God out the window. And we want to say, no, Jesus is alive. The eternal God is here. And this is true. And this is not true. And we bear witness to Jesus who is resurrected from the dead. And a perspective on life that is 2020 vision in the middle of a culture that's got a very warped vision of what is true. And so the Lord says, take the little bit we've got, and we've got to go through a door. And the Lord says, if you go through it, you will bear fruit. Now, let me just mention, much like this guy in uh, the novel, let's go to the, let me just take a couple seconds and just talk about this. Now, here's the Lord, it says, walk through the door, I, the Lord Almighty, am opening before you. So I want you to think now, not just corporately as a church, I want you to think of your, your family, if you're married here, uh, or if you're single, think of your life, but, and think of everyone as an individual. What open doors has God placed in front of me? That he's asking me to go through that door. Because when you go through that door, that means you're leaving something behind. If the church in Philadelphia goes through the door God has for them to impact on a, more, a larger scale, because Philadelphia, like New York City, was located very strategically. And no matter what happens here in the next couple of years, New York is a very strategic place for the world. As you go through that door, as I go through that door, you're leaving something behind, and the first hindrance I'm going to simply call, there's only two, is a fear of the unknown. Life fulfilled, the church in Philadelphia is going to change if they go through that door. If you obey God and walk through the door, your life's going to change. I, I must have two, three people come to me on the way out the door today and say, Coming to new life was, was an open door for me. But I realized by coming into new life was scary. Because if I stayed here, my life was going to change. I was going to have to leave a lot of old patterns of doing church, doing God, doing my life. And it was very tempting to run away. And it's been a challenge just to even go through the first door. Because when you go through one door, God's got other doors for you. But you can stay stuck where you are. The Church of Philadelphia does not have to go through the door. One of the great uh, truths that came out of the Holocaust literature after World War II was when the Allies got to the concentration camps, 
all over Eastern Europe, uh, there, was, there were some instances where people would not leave the barracks. They had been in captivity for so long in the smell of death and darkness, and, and uh, they were more comfortable in the barracks of death than coming out into the light. And some of us are more comfortable in the known, even if we're not flourishing joyfully and experiencing life, and, but at least we know it's death, but I'm comfortable with the death here. I'm, I'm comfortable with the pathology here. But the idea of going through a door, I don't know what's on the other side of the door. You're right, you don't know. What's going to happen? If, I'm gonna get, if, if Babylon the whore is going to kill me and drink my blood, I don't want to go through the door. Well, I don't know what's going to happen through the door, but I will tell you this. There's tremendous blessings on the other side of the door. But there is an unknown. The next thing is, I think the second biggest reason I'm gonna, is we don't eat the word. Now, there's an interesting theme about eating the word in the Bible. It's in Ezekiel. It's in here in John. And I, I quoted a verse here. Put the verse up. This is from chapter 9. Michael, you got it? It's uh, in chapter 10, I'm sorry, verse 9. And it's John the Apostle who wrote the book of Revelation. And it's before this chapter on bearing witness to what is true in chapter 11. And here's what it says. I, John, went and asked the angel to give me the little scroll, the Bible, the words of truth. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Just, you know, the stomach sour, because the sour part is that people, will not everybody's going to receive it. And you're going to experience rejection. And just like Ezekiel, his stomach turns sour because there's a painful part of knowing what is true that can set a person's life free, and they reject it. And you realize they are sowing death. That, that's turned your, that turns you sour. But in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand, and I ate it. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So he has to eat it. Part of the reason I believe we don't bear witness to what is true, is we don't eat the truth. We taste it, but we don't swallow it. There's no depth. Now, we don't, we don't have to go babbling all the place, babble our witness and what is true, because there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. Ecclesiastes 3. We don't throw our pearls before swine. Jesus told his disciples sometimes, shut your mouth right now. But it's discerning, when is that door open, and I seize it. The problem for some of us is, our, our spiritual disciplines and our walk with God is so anemic that we don't have the, 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 the witness out of us because the word and the truth is supposed to be in our being. It's not just intellectual, I learned some things about God, the Bible, and I spout it out. It's a life that is in you. This life of God is in you. This word is in you, and it just flows out of you. And so you go through the door, and you're giving what you've eaten. You've taken it in. You've meditated on it. You've made it your own. That is very different from spouting out, oh, yeah, God loves you, but you don't even believe it yourself. And my concern is some of us that are, are, um, are sin, we, we, we dabble in sin, we're bitter, we're angry, we've been hurt from other churches, and we're wondering what's our spouse going to think, what's our friends going to think, and we don't swallow the word, because we don't want it to so change us that we're going to go through these doors, and everything's going to change. But I think there's a prerequisite, and I think it's in the book, that you've got to eat it to bear witness to it. Just like John, that's a great, that's a great theme. All right, here's the promise. I'll close with this. There's three promises. He says, walk through the door, and I, the Lord Almighty, am opening for you. So I want you to think, what's the door you've got in front of you? And here's the promises. The first is found in verse 9. And very simply, it's this. He says, listen, Philadelphia Christians, if you'll go through that door, the people who oppose you, which is this Jewish synagogue, they are going to realize what is true and come and bow down at your feet. They're going to recognize that I'm on you, and the gospel is true. So first he's saying, if you'll go through it, I promise you there will be fruit. 
if you'll walk through and bear testimony. Now, what's interesting is in, the, in, in Revelation, our words have great power. When we say words to God and we pray, Revelation says it's like incense going up to heaven and it releases God's movement on the earth. So when you speak words of prayer to God, it's powerful. In the same way, Revelation says when we speak words of what is true out in the world, Revelation says these words are powerful. And when it hits the right soil, God moves and regenerates a whole life gets changed. So these words are powerful, and it will bear fruit, says in verse 9. He says to the people. Then in verse 10, it says this. I'm going to keep you in severe trials. In fact, it says in verse 10 that uh, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. What he's talking about is all these great judgments and, you know, again, earthquakes and natural disasters and who knows, bombs, whatever. He goes, but amidst all the trials that's hitting everybody, it's going to hit you too. Sorry. Some people like that verse that says, oh, yeah, because you're faithful to me and go through the door, you won't suffer. That's not what it says, all right? Sorry. And uh, it's, in fact, the translation in NIV says, I'll keep you from the hour of trial. Well, what it means by that, I'll keep you in it and through it. You're going to go through it, sorry. But there'll be a grace and a power in your life to have perspective. When you go through trials and difficulties and tribulations, they will not destroy you and cripple you and wipe you out. You'll find a power and a grace and a strength from me to walk through them that others do not have, if you'll go through the door. And then he gives the best promise of all. Now, I want you to picture, in verse 12, he talks about I'm going to make you, verse 12, a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, to appreciate this, you have to understand that the city of Philadelphia had all these pillars that hold up their buildings prior to the earthquake. All those pillars got knocked down. Now, in a pillar in those ancient times, if you were a great general or a hero or a, um, a king, your name might be written on a pillar, you know, King Tiberius. But God says this, I want you, in the middle of all this instability of tremors in life, earthquakes, I want you, and buildings falling down, I want you to know something. If you will walk through the door, I am going to make you a pillar in my temple, which will never be shaken. And I'm going to write your name on the pillar. You're not, not going to be a little rock over there on the side of the temple. You're going to be a pillar, like James is called a pillar, and John, and Peter, and Abraham's a pillar. You're going to be a pillar. Me, I just want a little straight. No, you're a pillar. You've got to catch it. The promise is that's how significant your life is, how important, how valuable that you walk through that door that I've got for you. Ah, oh, we're just a small, insignificant church. I, I just work for the police department. No, you don't understand. You're, I'm destined for you to be a pillar in my temple forever. And I'm going to write your name on that pillar. I'm going to write my name on your forehead. You're mine forever. Stability, security, and this is your new identity. You'll know who you are, who you're not. No one's going to shake you. Now go through the door. Because everything in him is like, oh, I don't know, I can't, I don't know. And go through the door. And the Lord say, I'm going to meet you on the other side. But I'm not going to force you through. I'm op it's open. you got to meet you. It's, it's verse 8. I have opened. I, it is open right now before you. Now walk through it. Your life will never be the same. But it's another level for this church of Philadelphia, and they'll never be the same. Again, I think of this guy in that story. I just told you the, the Byzantium story about that Irish monk. You know what? He walked through a door, but he never dreamed the journey it was going to take him on. Because only the door. And then all, a, like Chronicles of Narnia, you go through that closet door, there's a whole world out there for you to walk through. And along the way in our Christian lives, there are times when God's got another door for us. So let me close with this and ask you, what doors have, or what door has God opened for you? Don't worry about your spouse. Don't worry about your best friend. Don't worry about your neighbors. What, you, 
What door or doors has God opened for you? Now, you may say, I don't, I don't know, I don't care. I'm bitter, and I got hurt and angry. And, you know, and maybe you've got these deep loyalties to your family, you know, your, maybe your, your mother or father, maybe your children. But I want you to hear this verse from Jesus, Matthew 10. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. I love, you know, I love my mom, my remaining parents. And I have loyalties to my family, my culture. And sometimes those loyalties keep us from going through doors because they're so scary. What's on the other side? And then Jesus says, anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I love my children. But I don't love my children more than walking through the doors God has for me. So I don't know what your excuse is for not walking through the door. But Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, he's not, he's not asking, well, for those of you who are bitter, angry, hurt, this doesn't apply to you. It only applies to those of you who got it all together. That's not what he says. It's for everybody. And so this little dynamite inside of you, God's placed it. Little strength is in you. And the Lord says, I've opened a door for you that nobody can shut. It's that wide open. I've got the keys. I've unlocked the lock. And it's there before you. And that is the place of your freedom and joy in life. But I need you to trust me to walk through the door. Amen. Let's pray for a minute, okay? Michael, put that next verse up. Wait, wait, wait put that verse up. Yeah, put that, yeah, go ahead. One, one more thing. The next one. Isn't there one the next one? Ah, I forgot. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you now, as we open up our hearts to respond to you, Father, that you'd move by the Holy Spirit and drive this word that we as a church, New Life Fellowship, we may walk through the door you have, and doors you have for us as a church and be willing to change. And Lord, I pray for every individual in this room, every teenager, high school and junior high, Lord, every college student, every graduate student, Lord, every worker, every person unemployed, with our families and neighbors, we may walk through the door that you've opened before.